Global Broadcasting Networks presents Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Global Broadcasting Networks presents Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Boyd with you, and Sandra's on her way. We'll get her shortly. Um, One of the things that we wanted to uh, share with you today is uh, a wonderful book. We've got an author with us today, Michael T. Keene. His newest release is Vietnam Reflections, the untold story of the Holly Boys. Uh, I'm so looking forward to chatting uh, with Mike about this book, but I do want to uh, make sure that you're aware he has a number of other um, a number of other books under his belt as well. The Psychic Highway, Question of Sanity, Madhouse, Murder Mayhem, and Ma- at Madness. I love that one. Um, <laughs> folklore and legends. Yes, I know. Uh, visions. Um, what a wonderful plethora of topics right here. But Michael, thank you for joining us today because uh, I, I want to know a little bit more about you and of all of these topics where you may have um, then decided to, uh, to focus on Vietnam Reflections. Right. Well, actually, it began about four years ago, and I happened to visit the Rochester area Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Uh, Mm -hmm. I live in a suburb just outside of Rochester, New York, and a number of years ago, they constructed an absolutely wonderful memorial to the 280 Rochester area uh, veterans who died in Vietnam. And uh, so we went there, my family, and the way they do this is that there are 280 plaques, and on the plaques are the, is the branch of service that the service uh, person uh, served with, uh, their name, their date of birth, their date of death, and the high school that they attended. And I always thought that that was very interesting that they would tell you the high school, and it was only later that I learned why, and Maybe we can circle back, and I I can tell you why they did. But um, after going through the memorial and reading and observing the 280 plaques, it became shockingly clear that an inordinate number of these 280 boys, as I call them, um, all attended the same high school in an extremely small town in western New York. 
that being Holly High School. Uh, and doing a little research, I found that out that there were eight boys in a town that the average graduating class only had 30 people. So it was considered to be one of the worst casualty rates of the Vietnam War for any town and school in the United States. Oh, my gosh. I, I'm feeling that impact just listening to you discussing it. Right. Um, and actually, we have Sandra on the phone now. Uh, she's with us. Hi, San. Hi. Hi. Sorry about that. We had some technical difficulties. Well, that's okay. Um, and you hail from up in that neck of the woods. I do. I grew up about 10 minutes away from Holly High School. Wow. So I know very, very much about what you speak. So please continue. Well, um, after going through the memorial and learning this, you know, the, the, your, your regular life intrudes, and I was probably working on another book and other projects. And so it just gets filed, uh, you know, in your brain in some little compartment. So flash forward four years to this past March. And I'm on my way to deliver a talk at a, a place in Albion, New York, which is in Orleans County, the same county where Holly is located. And as I was, uh, and this is very rural, um, and as I was approaching uh, the little hamlet of Clarendon, there was a road sign that said Holly Three Miles. And I don't want to over-dramatize this, but this is exactly what happened. In, in, in an instant, uh, the memories of visiting the memorial four years earlier came flooding uh, into me. Uh, simultaneously, my own memories of Vietnam, I was with the Marines and, and served two tours in Vietnam, uh, and that came flooding back uh, together. And then thirdly, and maybe this is almost the uh, spooky part of it, uh, I knew instantly what I was going to do, that this story needed to be told and that I would try and locate the surviving brothers and sisters and family members and friends of these eight boys to find out about them and about their service in Vietnam. And so that's what I commenced to do. When you um, when you look back at this story, how have you changed the most from this experience? I mean, this is it's amazing to me because it's so close to my you know where I grew up and my understanding. But how has it changed you? Well, I suppose the first thing was I don't want to say that I. Uh, suppressed uh, my Vietnam memories because actually where I was in Vietnam was better than most. But I, you know, went to college when I got out of the service and the career, and, and then of course now eventually these books and I made movies and so on and so forth. And so I just didn't think about it. Um, and so I suppose on one level, suddenly I was confronted with this war, um, and also. I had written six previous books about, I suppose we would say, unusual but true stories that happened in New York State 
during the 19th century primarily. That's where my book Madhouse, for instance, about the history of insane asylums in New York and what that's about and so on and so forth. But this one, even though these events happened 50 years earlier, um, I was dealing with flesh and blood individuals. And, and the other part was that I now felt that I had a deep responsibility to get this story exactly right. And so I probably on one level just really had to pay attention to detail. And also a whole thing about interviewing people and what I came to learn about that. So if you're interested, we can even go there. Um, so it, it, and also I became totally caught up in the story of the Holly Boys because even though that's not where I grew up, my childhood was exactly like theirs. Playing Little League Baseball, joining the Boy Scouts, going to sock hops, um, but also driving cars too fast and drinking beer and, you know, getting into brawl. So, uh, and so it was like reliving my own uh, childhood, if you will. And so I found that to be uh, quite interesting. When you look at your experience of, of this, do you think that you were chosen to write this story? Well, I, I now say, and, and this is probably um, uh, almost a uh, cliche, but I believe it's true. I, I'm not really choosing these stories anymore. You know, when you're driving down a road, a back road in the middle of nowhere, minding your own business, <laughs> and you see a sign that then dictates what you're going to do, you know, in a way I have no control over. It, it's, it's a delicious obsession, I have to add. This is not a burden. And so I, I used to think deeply about subjects I was going to write about, and now they just come flooding at me. Um, in fact, this was the second book that I had written this past year. Uh, the first one was about the Erie Canal, the history of the Erie Canal. And actually, as it turns out, Holly is an Erie Canal town. There's very interesting connection relationship between the two. So, you know, again, and this is not the first time this has happened where I'm driving down a road, uh, and again, minding my own business. And, and so I, I say what happens is these stories now choose me. And, uh, and it's great. It sounds uh, fascinating. <laughs> Sorry, Rob, I was humming, like, you know, when we were little, we all had to learn the Erie Canal song. And yeah, when yeah, you yeah. said right. that, I'm like, we've all so much right. more. Right. Right. Da, 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 da. You're better at that than I am, let me tell you. <laughs> I know, isn't it funny how brains t have tangents and you just have to go with it sometimes? Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mike, on the other side, we've got a break coming up, uh, our first break. On the other side of the break, I, I, I'm fascinated when you said you sort of tried to reach out to all of the families uh, from of the Holly boys. Right. Um, and that must have been such an experience and such uh, – I'm very anxious to hear how receptive those families were and how the whole community uh, sort of embraced you with this with this mission um, right. uh, of finding these stories. So we definitely want to um, – 
want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, again, uh, we, we want to invite you to Google Michael's name. That's probably the first uh, and best way to find uh, Michael. It's Michael T, the letter T is in tango. Keen is spelled K-E-E-N-E. So we want to invite you to go there and uh, go to Google, find uh, not only his books, but his website you'll find too, which is ad hoc productions.com with a little hyphen in between each word. Uh, So on the other side of the break, we'll talk more with Mike. We're so glad that he's here. We hope that you're comfy, cozy, uh, and ready for a great uh, chat with our guest today. Uh, This is Military Mom Talk Radio, and we'll be back in a moment after these messages. We've got lots more ahead. Stay with us on Military Mom Talk Radio. Did Scotch tape originate in Scotland? Nope. The popular gift wrapping tape was actually developed right here in the United States. In 1926, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, 3M, was being a bit rapacious, trying to save a little scratch or money, and started using a cheaper adhesive on their sticky tape. A Detroit automaker ordered some of this newer, cheaper tape to use for spray-painting auto bodies. But the automaker complained because the tape was scotch, a politically incorrect word that meant cheap or stingy. While the tape didn't have the adhesion to satisfy the automaker, it was hardly a Jifu jet. That's an unnecessary thing. It had many other uses, as we all know. So the tape was kept in production, and the name Scotch just stuck. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. We're back with more great conversation on Military Mom Talk Radio. Hey, moms, this is Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd, and we're here today with such a great story, and it's near and dear to my heart because it's certainly in my hometown area, and we're we're visiting with Michael Keane. Now, he served two tours in Vietnam, and he's a Marine and always a Marine. And he wrote a 
great book called Vietnam Reflections, The Untold Story of the Holly Boys. And boy, when you talk about rural America, you don't get much more rural than uh, Holly, New York. And I know because I grew up right near there. And we're talking today about his story. And one of the things that he mentioned before we went to commercial break was the um, in, in, in the discovery period of writing this book, you talked um, about interviewing the family members, the surviving family members, Michael, I'd love to know how that went. Did you just pick up the phone and say, hi, I'm writing this book or, you know, and how did you even find them? Right. That is the question, isn't it? How do you find them? I mean, people don't walk around with little signs, you know, over their head, you know, saying I'm, I'm related to one of the uh, eight Holly boys. Um, One thing that I do, the first thing I did was that I was able to find the original obituaries of the eight boys. And in the obituaries, they gave, of course, the information about the uh, uh, the boy himself when he was born and, and so on, what branch and what happened and, and so on. But they also gave the names and ages of their parents and their brothers and sisters. Well, now it's 50 years later, and I'm assuming that the parents have uh, since died. But I have now a list of uh, uh, brothers and sisters, and their uh, and their ages back then. So I now know approximately how old they are now. So thinking, and and I didn't know whether this was true or not, but most people, or quite a few people, who have a a background from a small town tend to always maintain some sort of connection to that town. So uh, I managed to Google around and found ten people. Uh, who were approximately the same age that the Holly Boys brothers and primarily brothers, as you know, women get married and, and carry uh, their husband's name. But so I initially uh, tried to go after the brothers there, and and, and I uh, composed a letter that I sent out to these ten people who still had a connection to Holly and explaining who I was that I was a Vietnam veteran, former Marine, uh, was a writer, had had, uh, had a number of books published, and I wanted to find out more about their brother. And I told them that I wanted to write a, uh, uh, a very respectful accounting of, of their life and, and their death. And so I mailed out the 10 letters. And also, I managed to go to a couple of Vietnam websites where people left notes uh, in, in the case of the like the virtual Vietnam wall and there were people who left messages indicating that you know they were a relative of that particular uh, boy and had an email address well this a lot of these uh, messages were left 30 40 even 50 years ago so I contacted or sent out an email. Most of them bounced back at me. They no longer uh, existed and mailed out the 10 letters. About, I would say, the beginning of the third day, my phone rang, and it was the sister of one of the boys from Holly who had died. And that's how it all began. Uh, Between the sister who knew someone, who knew someone else, and going on to Facebook, uh, contacting the Holly historian, who did have some names and phone numbers uh, 
uh, relatives, but acknowledging that these were numbers that she had had for 40 years. I began to uh, hunt them down, so to speak, one by one. And by the time I was done, six months later, I contacted 35. Uh, they were mostly brothers and sisters, but also neighbors, uh, school chums, uh, military, uh, and such. So I, I conducted uh, over 60 interviews with these 35 people. As to their response to me, uh, that was one of the things I was really apprehensive about, because here I am, uh, they don't know me, uh, and I'm about to engage in a conversation that had to have been extremely difficult for them of this tragedy, which is what I call it, that happened 50 years earlier. And not only did they agree to talk to me, but I sensed that they needed to talk to me. And so the conversations that I had were incredible. Uh, it was almost as if, in fact, I had more than one say, it's about time. It's about time that somebody contacted us to find out what we know. Um, I, you may even get into this later, but... You know, when you talk about the uh, the issue of post-traumatic stress disorder, which, of course, many books have been written about from the standpoint of the individual uh, soldier, Marine, who has returned from Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq or any war. Uh, in this particular case, I believe I discovered nearly an entire town that was suffering from this. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, well, I just want to—I just, just want to jump in here for a second, Mike, to talk about some of this because this is this is really important. What you're you're talking about because many of our podcasts are listened to, or broadcasts are listened to, in small towns. And coming from a small town and living in one right now, you know, we offer up our young men, men and women to the service, small towns, right. and we. We offer up a high proportion of them. And, you know, there's not anybody in town who doesn't have a friend or a friend's son or daughter or somebody's buddy in the service. And so when something like this happens in a small town, it's very tragic because everybody knows everybody else. I know it's a tragedy right. in big cities, too. Yes, I get that. But there's a different um, there's a different. Um, emotionality to it. I've been to funerals, military funerals in small towns where people will come out and pay their respects because they the family goes to their church. They don't know the family, they don't know the person who died, right. but they go because and there's all this interlinking. And so when trauma happens like this, it's the town that's traumatized far greater than I think what happens in larger cities. I haven't experienced this living in New York, Chicago, or LA, but I definitely experienced it in my hometown. And I think, I think that's what you're talking about. Right. Well, what was uh, said to me was, of course, when there's a tragedy and it's shocking and people are grieving, eventually time intercedes and the event gets pushed farther and farther away, and it, it helps you to cope. But in this case, these eight deaths happened over a period of six years. Mm. 
And so the entire town attended every funeral, and it never ended. So, and it was even beyond that, because, again, one of the things I think about those small town versus the big city is that I'm in a little town, and I go to the post office. There's a good likelihood I'm going to run into somebody I know. In fact, every time I walk into the post office, I run into somebody I know. Uh, and in this case, it very well, uh, on many occasions, was one of the relatives of one of these uh boys who was killed whereas in a city you know you could be living four blocks away and you could have an entirely different world uh so yes that was i think a big part of it that the trauma never stopped or at least it didn't you know it was for such a prolonged period of time and the fact again that everybody knew everybody else that's what I was going to ask, Mike, whether these families had networked and, and sort of um, s- supported each other all of these years, or were they brought together because of your inquiries in your book? Well, the reaction of Holly to my book has been off the charts amazing. Uh, and not only Holly, but the, the county, Orleans County, I give you an idea. I live in Monroe County, which, again, is uh, the county where Rochester is located, and we probably have close to a million people who live in Monroe County. Orleans County, which is only 35 miles away, has a total of 15,000 people in the entire county. Uh, And so each one of these towns in Holly has always had nothing more than about 400 families that have lived in Holly. And so... That was the other part, which, and I didn't even think about it until after the book first came out, and the, and the historian of Holly said, I think, I gave her uh, an electronic copy of the book prior to uh, publication. I didn't have anyone from Holly, you know, fact check me or, you know, mm-hmm. give me editorial, uh, you know, comments or what have you, because, you know, I wanted the book, I, I thought I had discovered the essence of the story, and I didn't really want to be uh, waylaid, if you will, uh, by other people. But but the response, I'm going to give you an idea. This mm. tickles me. I'm going to do a book <laughs> signing. Listen to this. We, I'm going to do a book yeah, signing. Yeah, we've got two minutes before the break. So Okay. I'm going to do a book signing at the American Legion uh, in Holly on the 14th of this month. And so I got an email from the historian said, well, I want you to know we're all set up. We're having cookies and coffee, and and we put out the posters, and they're all over town. And we also submitted a notice with every person who's going to receive their gas and electric bill about the book signing. And I'm thinking to myself, what an innovative way for this little town to let everybody know that Michael Keane is going to be at the American Legion Hall by Isn't by putting a little amazing? notice in their, in their electric and and <laughs> uh, and heating bill. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Oh, Mike, that's fabulous. 
I have to ask on the other side of the break, uh, I, I want to uh, talk about the process. Once you pulled all of these stories together, you got uh, a chance to get everybody's uh, perspectives, their thoughts, their their uh, histories. How did it all come together? That must have been such a, an undertaking. We're here today with Michael T. Keene, uh, the author of Vietnam Reflections, The Untold Story of the Holly Boys. So stay tuned. We've got lots more after the break. We've got lots more ahead. Stay with us on Military Mom Talk Radio. LinkedIn. It's a great tool and a great way to do business in today's social media-driven world. And Carol McManus is the LinkedIn lady with the LinkedIn Lady Show. Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern on allbusinessradionetwork.com. The LinkedIn Lady Show is designed to inform, inspire, and educate businesses. Every social media site has a specific demographic, personality, and purpose. And the LinkedIn Lady will interview a variety of guests, such as business owners who can showcase their business and talk about how they use social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google+, Pinterest, and of course, LinkedIn. For more on Carol and the show, check out her website, LinkedInLady.com. As trends change and new applications become available, the LinkedIn Lady Show will bring that information to you in an easy-to-use, fun, and engaging way. Every Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern, it's the LinkedIn Lady Show with Carol McManus on AllBusinessRadioNetwork.com. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. We're back with more great conversation on Military Mom Talk Radio. Hi, Mamas. This is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Robin Boyd, and we are discussing this groundbreaking new book, Vietnam Reflections, The Untold Story of the Holly Boys. We're visiting today with the author, uh, Michael T. Keene, and he is um, a Marine. He served two tours in Vietnam, and he has an interesting background that he was sharing us with us during the break that relates to the grief counseling that went along with delivering this book into the small town of Holly, New York. Mike, give us your background and tell us what happened when this book opened the doors to these families in the past. Well, my career, which I have recently retired from, was as a financial advisor for a large Wall Street uh, firm. 
prior to that, though, I was uh, involved in the social work area, also in psychology. I was a uh, community mental health worker in one of the first community mental health centers uh, that was ever established in the state of New York. And also uh, my social work career took me as far afield as uh, rural southern Georgia. Now, there's rural. We, we talk about Holly as being rural. but uh, So I, I've had a fairly extensive background in interviewing people in terms of trying to get to know them. Uh, my, my career as a, center, a mental health worker sometimes would involve me being sent into the middle of an emergency room in the middle of the night uh, with police and uh, doctors and nurses and family members and ambulance people all milling around and then the poor unfortunate soul sitting on a bench who was obviously distressed. And inside of an hour, I needed to find out everything I could about that person and also what brought them into that emergency room that night, not the day before, not the week before, but that night, and also to figure out as much as I could about the family dynamics and then be able to consult with a psychiatrist and get that all done. So anyway, um, as I was uh, interviewing uh the Holly boys' uh, relatives, and which I did between emails and phone calls and, and so on. Uh, one of the things I learned was as I would ask a particular question, and, I, and when you ask questions, like I guess maybe the, the questions I'm being asked now, there's an agenda, there's certain information that uh, the interviewer wants to learn about. And but the most important part about the interviewing process with the Holly people was that sometimes they would get off the reservation, so to speak, and, and begin what I thought initially was uh, uh, talking about something totally unrelated to my question and then learning I needed to let them go. They needed to tell the story their way. And inevitably, they would circle back and just give me the most powerful uh, stuff. Uh, I, I won't go into it now, but it's one of the chapters in the book, an event that happened at one of the funerals. And I only came to learn about it because I finally figured out that their way of telling this story was better than mine. And in fact, that's the way the book is set up as a series of interviews of course, and, and the responses and the remembrances by these various family members. It must have been a difficult uh, task to take all of these notes. Did you use recordings as well, or did you just, uh, how, did, how did you begin to uh, culminate all of these stories without right. making a, a book that was 2,000 pages long? Right. But that's always been the challenge, isn't it? I, I suppose I learned that when I began making historical documentaries, uh, which I actually ended up doing first before I wrote the books. And, and one of the things I learned about making, well, a movie was that it's always better if it's shorter. And so whenever I thought I had the perfect movie, my objective was to make it 10% shorter. And then I tried to make it shorter still and so on and so forth. So um, 
and I think I applied that in this particular case, and I think it works. Sometimes just less is more. And when somebody tells you, you know, this is what happened when I opened up the front door and I looked outside, nothing else needs to be said sometimes. That's what they saw. And a lot of cases, a lot of the chapters ended that way. And you, I think what I try to do is allow the reader to be able to figure it out, some of it themselves. So, but to answer your question, I mean, I had a lot of the responses in writing. Uh, some, the, the thing about the people that I interviewed, they may be from small towns or from a small town, but they were incredibly articulate, uh, very well educated, very bright. And so between my being able to take notes, I, I can recall conversations that I get in trouble sometimes when I say this, but I can recall conversations word for word that I might have had with somebody 15 years ago. Uh, when you work in the financial services area, you better remember your conversations because if you're recommending certain investment vehicles, you know you can't make that up as you go. So between what I had in writing uh, and between my notes, and then this is one of the reasons why I went back and re-interviewed people several times, just to make sure that I had it exactly right. Because, again, it, it, it came to me that I had a responsibility here, and which I knew when you write about uh, true events, that even if they happened 100 years ago, I've had people contact me and say, you know that person you wrote about in that story? That was my great-grandmother. So you best get it right, because there are people out there that know it probably better than you do. And so I tried to make sure that my notes were concise but captured exactly what was told to me. I'm fascinated by thinking of of this small. I'm from a small town in New Hampshire, um, and knowing how everybody does sort of know of each other, even if we don't know each other. You go to the grocery store and you know, oh, there's the person who lives over on Smith Road. They, this person lives over on Pinnacle Hill. I, I mean, we know of these people, um, and I can only imagine that they must have been relieved to sort of have this new connection now to be able to uh talk not only with you but then with each other right that's going to be uh fun for me to find that part out and that's interesting that you bring that up because i don't know of the conversations that they've had amongst themselves um i've gotten the most incredible emails and phone calls since the book has come out uh, from people related to the story. Uh, one of the Holly boys, in fact, there were two of the eight boys were married. Um, one didn't have any children, but the other had a two-year-old daughter when he was killed in Vietnam. That was 49 years ago. The two-year-old daughter, now 49 years later, sent me an email a uh, week before last. Uh, and she has been desperately trying to learn as much as she can about her father, who she never knew. Yeah. And, of course, wanted me to be able to tell her more. And, and did I know her father? And so my response was that I, of course, did not know him, but that she could perhaps 
find some solace in knowing that her father now will be always remembered and honored. And I think she probably, you know, took some consolation, you know, from that. Uh, and, and again, that's been the essence of uh, the feedback that I've gotten from uh, some of the uh, the family members. Uh, I had one, one from one of the brothers of one of the boys who said that he could only read one page at a time because he kept on breaking down. And it was the first time that he had cried ever about the death of his older brother, who he hardly knew, because he was, I think he might have been around eight or nine, and his older brother was 20 when he went off and and was killed in Vietnam. So that's some powerful stuff, you know, real stuff coming, you know, from these people. So that's been a fascinating aspect of this whole, uh, whole process. What what a phenomenal um, perk! I hate to say it that way, but everybody writes has a different reason for writing a book. But to know how much this book now has evolved and created uh, something so positive in this community and with these families right. is is great. Um, it is incredible. We have another break coming up, Mike, um, in a couple of minutes. Um, you said you have a book signing coming up in Holly? Right. <clears throat> and what's the date on that? Uh, it's January 14th, which is uh, on a Saturday. I guess it must mm-hmm. be a week from this coming Saturday. And it's from 2 to 4 o'clock at uh, the American Legion Hall in downtown Holly, New York. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um I'm excited to to uh, follow this story even further uh, in months to come because I can only imagine um, how this has is going to make such a difference in this community. Um, and with your permission, on the other side of the break, I would love to. Uh, I have there the um, young men the list of the young men um, that that you are talking about, the Holly mm-hmm. boys here. So I'd love to honor them um, and acknowledge them on the other side of the break. Um, and you said that your website uh, is the best place to purchase this book? Right. It's uh, Well, of course, you can purchase it uh, through Amazon. Okay. Uh, my website is the way for somebody in other parts of the country, probably the best way. I, my books are sold in a host of bookstores, uh, primarily in New York, uh, probably 35 or 40 different bookstores. But okay. if you're out in, in the rest of the world, you're not going to be able to do that. So <laughs> either Amazon or my website. My website has a little bit of an added uh, benefit, I suppose, that you would receive a signed copy. Uh, Amazon oh, doesn't do yeah. that. You, you sure. don't pay quite as much when you go through Amazon, but <laughs> but it's only money. <laughs> That's right, and it's all for good purpose here. Right. We've got uh, we've got this break coming up, Mike, and I want to make sure if you do want to go to that website, it's ad hyphen hawk hyphen productions dot com. Correct. We'll be back in a moment after the break. We'd love to hear from you. Check us out at militarymomtalkradio.com dot com, or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Our shows are available on iTunes anytime from 0 hours to 2359. 
for now, stay right where you are. There's more Military Mom Talk Radio after these messages. Close your eyes and imagine living your life without limits. Where would you go? Who would you meet? What would you do? During an Uncover Your Hidden Genius session, you will discover what's keeping you from living your life with purpose, passion, and fulfillment of your potential. You'll get a clear vision of the steps you need to take to uncover your hidden genius so that you can live a life without limits. Sessions can be done over the phone, Skype, or in person. Find out more at www.JoyceBufordEmpowers.com or by calling 903-287-0747. It's Merging Man Have you ever butt-dialed someone accidentally? According to a report, for every 100 calls made to 911 this year, about 40 were dialed unintentionally. Recently, a mother in Canada called police after receiving a nightmarish cell phone call from her daughter, filled with blood-chilling screams and a man shouting murderous threats. Police discovered that the girl was at a movie theater in Victoria. Anticipating the worst, the cops were preparing to descend on the cinema when a dispatcher tried calling the girl's cell phone one last time. The girl answered her phone and explained she was not being attacked by a murderer, but was watching the horror film Cabin in the Woods. What do you call the activity of being impolite in a social situation by looking at your phone instead of paying attention to the person you are with? Fubbing. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back with more great conversation on Military Mom Talk Radio. Hey, Mamas, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Robin Boyd, and we're visiting with Michael T. Keene, and he wrote a great book called Vietnam Reflections, The Untold Story of the Holly Boys. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on his website, Ad Hoc Productions. It has a hyphen in it, ad productionscom Now, Michael, this has been an amazing journey uh, to go back to the small town of Holly to talk to the family members. I'm going to ask you, what was the most memorable moment? Like, what is the one thing that you you will take to your dying day saying this was extraordinary just for this process? Well, actually, when I was drawing up the outline for the book in terms of how I was going to tell this story, I realized that I needed to give some context to it as far as the Vietnam War is concerned. So about a third of the chapters are comprised of key turning points into what led us into the war in Vietnam, and then the key turning points as far as what led us to begin to withdraw from Vietnam. So there's the a third of the book, which is about Vietnam and how we got in and and how and why we got out. Uh, another third, of course, is the Holly boys themselves. Uh, they're growing up and their childhood and uh, high school years and, of course, into the service. The other part to the book, which I hadn't realized because when I first drew up the, uh, the outline, it didn't appear, which is what I learned about Holly itself. 
and that becomes the third uh, character in the book. Um, I decided that I needed to go back a couple of generations from the boys. I needed to learn about their parents. I needed to learn about their grandparents. You know, if, if you think living in a small rural town is something, fine. But the people, the original settlers who came there, uh, actually some of which were related to the Holly Boys, but I, I wanted to find out about their extended families to a certain extent. So I learned an awful lot about Holly itself. Um, and that is probably the second biggest revelation that I had, which is it now became uh, a story about, as I have it in the back of the book, uh, this remarkable small town that most people probably never heard of. Because Holly is a remarkable uh, small town. But, I mean, eight boys from Holly died. Why Holly? Um and one of the things I found, and this was the biggest revelation, is that Holly High School, where these boys uh, attended, won the New York State marching band competition six times in a row. And it, when I began to learn about a marching band, what an incredible uh, ensemble that is. You have 40, 50, 60 uh, musicians playing, you know, an all assortment of different instruments and marching in unison. And to win that championship six years in a row, it's when I learned about that, I said, what accounts for that? And then I learned about this remarkable person by the name of Ray Shaheen, uh, who has his own separate chapter, uh, appendix in the book, which is he not only was the band director, the marching band director, but he also composed all the music. And when he left Holly High School eventually, he went to another high school and won three more state uh, marching band competitions. And Holly, the Holly marching band was held in such high regard as they were the lead band at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 1962. And, and so I actually have some of the music that they played from 1962 in the audiobook version. Uh, I, I didn't mention that I had all, I convert all my books to audiobook. Mm -hmm. And this particular audiobook will have the, the book uh, as narrated by 10 different people, all with original music. So, again, to, to get back to uh, what I found the most remarkable was that. You had to look at the people, the, the founding fathers and mothers, uh, so to speak. And I think that carries through today as I now have been in contact with people from Holly and their, you know, their uh, thoughts and feelings about the book itself. It, it truly is a remarkable uh, small town that nobody ever heard of, and it is the third and perhaps uh, central character in, in the telling of the story. This is is truly a, a remarkable story. I, we would like to very much um, read the uh, names of these young men that we're we're talking about and pay our respects uh, to these families. John P. Davis was thirty when he was killed in action, July twenty first, nineteen sixty five. David Dwayne Case was twenty 
killed in action September 16, 1965. Ronald P. Sisson, 23, killed in action December 16, 1965. Howard L. Bowen, 20, when he was killed in action November 8, 1966. Gary E. Bullock, 24, when he was killed in action January 31, 1967. Gary Lee Stimus, 26, killed in action May 25, 1967. George Warren Fisher Jr., 23, was killed in action August 3, 1968. And Paul Scott Mendrakia, 18, was killed in action April 16, 1970. Mike, do you have plans to continue to stay in touch with these families at this point? It sounds like you're part of the family now. Well, I think that's it. You know, um, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in for duration. Um, <laughs> it, it's a great little place, and everyone there is, you know, it's just been great. And, uh, yeah, so it, it looks like uh, I'm now a member of the family. You're adopted. Now, I'm let's adopted. lighten it up a little bit. I mean, I, I, I want to know, was there anything that happened that was really funny in the, um, you know, in the, in the finding of the families or, you know, going to the small town? You know, what was uplifting or funny in this process as right. well as, you know, honoring the seriousness of what happened? Right. Um, well, I have a lot of the funny little stories in the book. Uh, one of the ones that is uh, incredible is uh, the one boy, uh, Howard Bowen, had a uh, propensity of getting himself sprayed by skunks. And <laughs> he would come home yelling, you know, that he'd been sprayed. And, and it was like a, uh, a fire drill that the solution uh, was uh, to be doused in homemade tomato juice. Yep. Uh, this was tomato juice that was, you know, canned uh, by his mother. And uh, so the whole thing about when he takes off his clothes and how he's doused with the tomato juice and how he takes the shower and what happens to the clothes and so on and so forth. Well, I'm talking to the sister of another one of the boys. This is like two months later. And we're talking about, you know, life as uh, she knew her brother and growing up and so on. And she says, oh, you know, the other thing about... Uh, uh, Paul was that uh, he always was getting sprayed by skunks. And she repeated almost word for word what uh, <laughs> Howard Bowen's sister had told me about, you know, he comes in, he's yelling, he's been sprayed by the skunk, he takes off the clothes. They had the same tomato juice uh, solution <laughs> was, was canned by his mother. And I just thought, well, how great is that? I mean, this, if you had asked me, for, you know, for a million years, what do you do when you're sprayed by a skunk? I couldn't tell you. But in this town, they had it down to a science. So <laughs> well, there's a lot, have a lot, there's of, a lot skunks. of stuff. There's not a lot to do, and you spend a lot of time outside. I'll just I'll leave right. it at that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, you know, uh, several of the families were farmers. And, in fact, that was one of the comments. And, and we all know this, uh, depending on your age. Uh, certainly boys know this that when I was growing up, and I grew up at exactly the same point in time that the Holly boys were growing up, your mother basically uh, kicked you out of the house in the morning, and she said, you know, be back by dinner. And between you and your baseball glove and your bicycle, you could entertain yourself for an entire day, right? You might come back. You went to somebody's house for lunch, but it didn't have to be your house. And so it was a, 
it was a period of time when mothers, you know, weren't constantly looking out the window seeing what, what happened to you. She was probably just happy to get rid of you, you know, for the for the hours that you were gone. But but that was that was it. You were never home uh, during the day uh, in terms of like watching television. I mean, like back then there were only three channels and uh, and you would never as a, as a kid. You would never think about watching television. Uh, you were out, and you were you were doing stuff. So that's what it was like, and maybe even more so for the farming families because their days seemed to begin earlier, and they ended later. And uh, and also some of the stories which I have in the book about these kids growing up in a farm who had to work. You know, they had to milk cows and pitch hay and 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 so on, and how they turned it into a game, uh, and so they could have fun you know, while they were doing it. So I, I like to think that my book is not only about the the war uh, and, of course, about people who died in the war, but it's about a slice of, of life of what it was like to grow up in the 50s and the 60s. I say in a small rural town, I, I suspect for most people who grew up in the 50s and 60s, most of us were in small towns because uh, that's when all towns were small. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and what life was like and just kind of the day-to-day uh, types of activities that you engaged in, which, uh, again, could be uh, and were quite funny. Mm. This is a wonderful uh, opportunity for us, and, and we're so grateful to you for sharing it with us and sharing the process uh, with us. And, of course, uh, certainly uh, for bringing to light the stories of these families and this particular town. Uh, we've come to the close of this this episode, but we're very, very grateful that you came and visited us today. Michael T. Keene, and that's K-E-E-N-E. Uh, and the book, again, is Vietnam Reflections, The Untold Story of the Holly Boys. And we hope that you go to Amazon. We hope that you go to his website, though, because then you can get that signed copy. So... <laughs> We, we want to make sure that you go to ad-hawk-productions.com uh, and look for this book as well as many of his others. Michael, thank you so much for you your time much. and okay. this wonderful story. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Sandra, I hope you're you're all set over there. You're. I am. I'm just going to say a big hello to the Holly neighborhood. If anybody listens to this episode, we're thinking of you, and I'll think about you guys when I'm home. Wonderful. Thanks for all all of you for being with us today here on Military Mom Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in to Military Mom Talk Radio. Want more information? Check us out at MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com or find us on iTunes for more than 200 free episodes. Drop us an email or find us on Facebook. We are looking forward to another great discussion. We hope you'll join us on Military.